Hello and welcome to the Bristol History Podcast with me, Tom Brothwell. The Bristol History Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Bristol Cable. The Bristol Cable is the city's media cooperative owned and created by local people. This week, I spoke with Brickin Carey, Professor of English at Northumbria University, to discuss the life and work of 18th century Bristolian poet Anne Yearsley, and in particular her 1788 work, a poem on the inhumanity of the slave trade. Professor Carey takes up the story. Let me start by perhaps introducing uh, your listeners to Anne Yearsley. Anne Yearsley was a poet. She was a poet uh, who lived in the latter half of the 18th century. And she came from a uh, rather modest background. There were, um, in fact, quite a a lot of what are known as labouring class poets uh, in uh, 18th century Britain, more than you would think, because literacy was quite well developed. There were were more people who could read and write than you might imagine in in, in the 18th century. Few of them, though, ordinary people who could read and write uh, sort of for practical purposes, uh, fell in love with poetry in the way that and Yearsley did, and she became a complete fan of uh, people like, uh, well, her favourite was John Milton and Paradise Lost, that great 17th century poem. So as a, as a young woman uh, working as a, as a, as a milkwoman, uh, she, she sort of grew to love poetry and then to write poetry herself. I should say that uh, Anne Yearsley was living in or near Bristol in Clifton, I, I believe, and uh, she was living very close to a rather well-known Bristolian, Hannah Moore, who was a writer herself, a playwright, a poet, and so on. And uh, during a, a rather difficult year where food was was missing, Yearsley went to the, this rich neighbour's house to collect scraps for pig swill, and uh, as she was there, the topic of poetry came up, and I'm not quite sure exactly how it happened, but one way or another, Hannah Moore got to, to hear about this rather well, literally hungry young woman and her family who was a poet and uh, inquired after her and took her under her protection. And after a short while, published uh, her poems or, or, or arranged for her poems to be published. So Hannah Moore, this very well-known uh, writer, sort of plucked from obscurity, this very ordinary person who, who liked writing poems, made her poetry available to a, to a public. And uh, of course, as Hannah Moore had lots of fans, the, her fans kind of came together to buy Anne Yearsley's poetry. Uh, and this was a commercial endeavour. It was a successful commercial endeavour and made quite a, a lot of, of money. So that's kind of the beginning of the story of Anne uh, Yearsley. She became quite famous as a result. And uh, as I said, there was a sum of money involved. And uh, Hannah Moore decided to invest it, as she thought, I think, wisely on, on 
Yearsley's behalf. Yearsley didn't see it that way. She felt that uh, uh, Hannah Moore was not allowing her access to the money that she'd earned herself, and, and the two uh, fell out. This was about the year 1786, uh, when all of this was happening, 1784, 85, 86, when Hannah Moore and Yearsley were working together and then falling out. And after that time, Yearsley and Moore sort of went their separate directions, although both uh, still living, for the most part, uh, at least at first uh, in and around Bristol. Yearsley became uh, an independent writer. She produced a number of collections of poetry some of which are actually quite easily available on the internet. You can sort of put in a search engine and you can come up with some, uh, some rather brilliant stuff from her, some of which is a bit more obscure. One of the poems that Anne Yearsley produced in 1788 was um, a poem on the slave trade. It was called A Poem on the Inhumanity of the Slave Trade. And it was uh, dedicated to Frederick, the Earl of Bristol, Bishop, of Derry, et cetera, et cetera, as it says on the title page, and he'd sort of taken her under his protection. By coincidence, Hannah Moore had also written a poem on the slave trade, which came out, as far as we can tell, the same day, or at least uh, only a day or two differently, one in London, one in Bristol. Critics and historians have long thought that they might have been doing this in rivalry with each other, but actually I think probably they didn't know uh, that uh, they were both working on the same topic. So this poem came out in 1788, and this was at the height of the anti-slave trade uh, agitation that was going on in, in Britain at that time. What happened then is that Yearsley, following the publication of the, the poem on the slave trade, uh, Yearsley sort of rather changed direction, and she decided to turn her attentions to the stage. She wrote a play called Earl Goodwin. She also wrote a novel called The Royal Captives and that came out in 1795 telling the story of the man in the iron mask that imprisoned by Louis XIV that's been more famously told by others. She carried on publishing poetry as well but she also set up in sort of other endeavours, other business enterprises. So she set up a, a circulating library in Bristol a circulating library is what we would just really today call uh, a lending library, although in those days it wasn't free. That's you paid your money to rent a book for a, a few days. This actually provided most of her uh, income, uh, particularly after her husband, John Yearsley, died in 1803. Uh, after that time, she retired away from Bristol. She went to Melksham and uh, she died there in 1806. So that's kind of, uh, in a nutshell, the life of uh, Anne Yearsley. The way that I came across Yearsley's work in relation to Hannah Moore was this kind of idea that Yearsley, she had this kind of God-given talent, uh, but she was uneducated, sort of unlettered. And there's a maybe a, a hint or more than a hint of sort of patronising going on here, right? Is that fair to say? Well, there are two meanings of the word patronising. Um, and in, in literary terms, uh, Hannah Moore offered her patronage. That's not necessarily a bad thing because we might think of it more perhaps today as sponsorship. Hannah Moore was essentially helping her break into the literary marketplace. So patronage isn't necessarily a bad thing. Once the relationship with Hannah Moore had, had gone sour, she then got the protection, we might also call it the patronage of the Earl of Bristol, Frederick Hervey, the Earl of Bristol and Bishop of Derry. 
But yeah, there's also that other meaning of the word patronize, which is to sort of look down on someone and uh, to treat them as an inferior, perhaps with best interests, uh, uh, but certainly still with a, a differential of power in a relationship. And there is certainly that in the relationship between Hannah Moore and Anne Yearsley. And uh, I think that Hannah Moore always saw herself as somebody who was lifting up to a certain level this poor poet. But I think with her sort of aristocratic background, Hannah Moore would have only wanted to have seen Yearsley levelled up so far. And uh, that uh, is, a, is a sort of a patronising relationship rather than a relationship of patronage. And I think that those two things are both going on at the same time. And Yearsley was quite clear from her later career, a very strong minded woman, a very capable woman. And it's clear that she kind of resented being treated that way. And let's face it, who can blame her? I was going to say fascinating that clearly they were being motivated and they were being in, they were interested in in that both were taken by slavery and abolition to be writing, like you say, publishing more or less at the same time on on that subject. Yeah, I think we can put that into some context because you're absolutely right. Both Hannah Moore and Anne Yearsley wrote a poem opposing the slave trade, and they both did so at exactly the same time. The poems were published within days of each other, if not even on the same day. But the context of that is that every poet in the country was writing about the slave trade in 1788. So uh, they were certainly not alone there. And both of them wrote about many other things across their careers. Both of them, I think, are jumping on what was, for a lot of people at that time, uh, a bandwagon. Because although, of course, the campaign to uh, abolish the slave trade was a good thing and, a, a, and an important thing, there were a lot of writers who also sort of saw it as, as the, the, the cause of the day and wanted to be seen to be involved with it. We should just say that, um, just to give a bit of historical context, as I'm sure people in, in Bristol know very well, the uh, slave trade had been ongoing for centuries, That uh, the, the uh, not just in Bristol, but also uh, in London, later in Liverpool, and from actually lots of small ports uh, all around the country. There was slave trading uh, almost everywhere, but um, the country had... I think in many cases quite reluctantly, but it kind of accepted it as a necessary evil in the 17th century. And although there were lots of people who didn't like it and who said that they didn't like it, no one really made a huge fuss about it until the end of the 18th century. And then in the 1780s, for a number of reasons, people came together and formed a political campaign against the slave trade and that started in uh, 1787 and very very quickly the people who were on the abolition committee the committee to abolish the African slave trade realized that if they were to get through to people they'd have to get through to them not just with kind of hard facts but also with um, poetry and novels uh, and, and art uh, through, through various cultural means and so that anti-slavery committee actually invited some of the best known poets of the day to contribute poems to the cause. And the three they invited were William Cooper, who was the, absolutely the, the, the biggest poetic star of, of the day. And he contributed some ballads, as he put it, to be sung about the streets. They asked William Roscoe from Liverpool, who was a lawyer, poet, children's writer, natural historian, all sorts of things from Liverpool, 
to write a poem, which he did called The Wrongs of Africa, it actually came out in, in two parts. And they asked Hannah Moore, who was incredibly famous uh, poet at that time and popular poet at that time, to contribute. And Hannah Moore did so as well with her poem on the slave trade. So the abolition campaign is deliberately getting poets on their side. And as soon as those poets start releasing, as they, we would say today, publishing their, their works, every other poet in the country wants to follow suit. Anne Yearsley would not necessarily be trying to copy Hannah Moore there. She would just be writing a general kind of crescendo of anti-slavery sentiment that's being expressed across poetic culture and also in novels and art and, and on the stage and all sorts of other places as well in that year. You've raised many interesting points. One is the sort of centrality of poetry as a something that is being used to mobilise, to get people on side. I think you refer in your, in your article to the, the organisation, is it S-E-A-A-S-T, the abolition movement as being one of the, the first modern political pressure campaigns. And it's just interesting, perhaps shows maybe how I think of poetry in, in the modern world, but maybe as something a little bit more esoteric or something with with a, perhaps a more limited audience, but clearly in the 18th century, this is one of the main tools that is being used to sort of spread knowledge of this of this campaign. Yes, that's right. And that acronym, that rather ungainly acronym, S-E-E-A-S, um, the uh, Society for Affecting the Abolition of the African Slave Trade, uh, which generally we call the uh, Abolition Committee. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And poetry was not quite as esoteric, as you put it then, uh, as it is today. Although actually, do you know, there are millions of people who read poetry and millions who write poetry today. So I, I think actually poetry remains quite popular, but it certainly was in those days uh, extremely popular. And uh, in many ways, we can think of poets in the late 18th century as being akin to pop stars today. And you can see this in literature at the time. You can see, you know, many people have um, read Jane Austen, for example, and seen those scenes in Sense and Sensibility where they're reading out Cooper's poem. And that's the same Cooper who was being asked by the Abolition Committee to write anti-slavery verse. So you can see you know, that poetry was a very important cultural uh, tool and very important in perhaps changing people's minds, more of kind of building a sense of community, I think, amongst amongst people who wanted to, to campaign against the slave trade and who wanted to force MPs to outlaw the slave trade. I don't suppose members of parliament were quite as likely to be swayed by poems as others, but of course they would be swayed by a groundswell of public opinion that had been brought about by kind of changing people's hearts and minds, as they say, uh, through poetry. I would just say as well that it's not just in the late 1780s, in fact this had been going on for a while, and William Cooper had written poetry very critical of the slave trade several years before the uh, abolition movement of the late 1780s. There's Thomas Day and his friend John Bicknell, based in London, who'd written a poem in 1773. It was called The Dying Negro. That was about an enslaved person committing suicide on board a slave ship. And that was actually very influential in the, in the 1770s in mobilising public opinion. And I think reading through Yearsley's poem on the slave trade that she knew that poem very well. And back to Bristol, Chatterton 
had written a poem um, which was critical of the slave trade, and that was quite a lot earlier. It wasn't uh, just Moore and, and Yearsley in the context of that abolition movement, but actually poets have been writing against the slave trade for quite, quite a number of years before. And in fact, we can see them as one of the reasons why people started to change their mind and started to want to make a fuss and wanted to campaign against the slave trade at this time. Between circa 1725 and 1740, Bristol had surpassed London as the major British slaving port, accounting for about a third of the whole British trade in this period. By 1788, when Anne wrote her poem, Bristol had fallen well behind Liverpool as a centre for British slaving voyage. However, slave voyages were still taking place, and Bristol was well known as a port made wealthy on slaving connections. Just a year before Anne's poem, the noted abolitionist Thomas Clarkson had made a visit to Bristol to collect evidence from sailors about the methods and conditions aboard slave ships. A year later, we find Anne attacking the trade and calling out the hypocrisy of those who defend it in her poem on the inhumanity of the slave trade. I think actually it is worth saying that the poem is framed by Bristol, that there's no doubt in Yearsley's mind that Bristol bears uh, some of the blame for the slave trade. And the story that she tells about an, an enslaved person called Luco is completely imaginary. She'd never been to, to Africa or to uh, the Caribbean. So this is just a story that uh, she's invented based on her sort of own imagination and reading about the slavery and the slave trade presumably in the newspapers and so on it was it was being discussed everywhere at that time but of course she did have first-hand experience of Bristol she must have seen the slave ships come in and out at Bristol and uh, so she did know all about that and so the poem very very much frames the African story with a story about Bristol let me just read uh, some of the opening lines you'll hear me reading it in my voice speaking as a, as a man but of course this it perhaps ought to be read by a woman because the story about Luco is a man's story in the, in the, in the middle, but actually I think it's Yearsley's voice that's, that's framing that, that story. But I'll, I'll read it in any case. Bristol, thine heart hath throbbed to glory. Slaves, in Christian slaves have shook their chains and gazed with wonder and amazement on thee. Hence, ye groveling souls who think the term of Christian slave a paradox, to you I do not turn, but leave you to conception narrow. With that be blessed, nor dare to stretch your shackled souls along the course of freedom. Yet, Bristol, list, nor deem Lactilla's soul lessened by distance. Snatch her rustic thought, her crude ideas from their panting state, and let them fly in wide expansion. Lend thine energy, so little understood by the rude million, and I'll dare the strain of heaven-born liberty till nature moves obedient to her voice. Alas, my friend, strong rapture dies within the soul while power drags on his bleeding victims. Custom, law, ye blessings and ye curses of mankind. What evils do you cause? 
we feel enslaved yet move in your direction custom thou wilt preach up filial piety thy sons will groan and stare with impudence at heaven and if they did abjure the act where sin sits full on inhumanity the church they fill with mouthing vaporous sighs and tears which like the guileful crocodiles oft fall nor fall but at the cost of human bliss well, I'll end there, and it goes on for about another 30 or 40 pages. <laughs> I wanted to just start there, and there's a, a couple of things to say. First of all is, yes, it starts with Bristol, that the, the poem here is pointing out that there is a considerable amount of hypocrisy uh, in the country around the slave trade, that people who talk about liberty but uh, permit slave trading to go on are hypocritical. And also people who talk about the slave trade as, uh, as an evil, but do nothing about it. They are, she says, like the guileful crocodile. They are shedding crocodile tears. So it's, a, it's an attack on hypocrisy. It is an attack on Bristol, but uh, it's also a call for people to take action. And in this context, action means putting pressure on members of parliament. And that does come up later in the poem where she talks Despite it being in rather sort of convoluted 18th century language, she does talk to, to her readers and say, essentially in, in modern terms, lobby your MP. And uh, so it is a political poem. You make the point in, in the article, I think, that there's a, a sense here that Bristol is to blame, but also Bristol can change, or it's an appeal to people who might be reading her, her poetry within Bristol, that the city can change, or, or that there's that potential for being made aware of some of the, the horrors that are being perpetrated and, and turning away from it. There's an appeal to Parliament, but also an appeal to, I think, is it the term you use, social love? She has a few beliefs that transcend all of her poetry, one of which is that she believes in natural sentiment or natural passions. She thinks that people can be naturally good, that they can be naturally able, they can be naturally poets. And in a sense, as somebody who hadn't been to school or university who taught herself to read, that's very important. So she kind of wants to see people being naturally sympathetic towards enslaved people. And part of that is expressed through what she calls social love. She, she thinks that, uh, that there's this kind of bond of, of sympathy that unites uh, society as a whole. It's by loving each other that we have societies. And of course, this is both a, a very conventional Christian idea and also an idea which was being promulgated by philosophers like Adam Smith and David Hume at the time, the so-called moral sense philosophers. But it's also a point that's sort of inherent in the golden rule to do unto others uh, as they would do to you, to love your neighbour as, as you love yourself. So social love is very, very important to her. And the idea is that uh, if everyone was, was good to everyone else, such evils as the slave trade could no longer stand. And um, she, at the end of the poem, she actually calls on the people of Bristol to embrace what she calls that sympathy unseen, what she calls uh, social love, thou universal good. Thou that canst fill the vacuum of immensity and live in endless voids. That is to say that social love is such a huge and powerful thing that it can kind of fill the universe. But she actually says that this sympathy, this power of sympathy will overflow the, the slave trade. And the poem ends 
with a, a, a sort of vision of Bristol as a virtuous city that's embraced social love. It ends on this quite a positive note. She turns to the inhabitants of Bristol and said, and when thou hast to high perfection wrought this mighty work, say such is Bristol's soul. So she's asking the people of Bristol to show that they have this, this social love at their heart, not just of, of, the, of the inhabitants of Bristol, but of the city uh, as a whole. In terms of how this fits in with the sort of broader abolition movement. So she is, like you say, there is an appeal to the people of Bristol. There's an appeal to Parliament. She talks about the hypocrisy, as you've already mentioned. She talks about the idea of, of slave traders being swept from the earth. It's clearly a poem in sympathy with abolition. Is it seen as very radical at the time? I mean, you've given a sense that every poet worth his or her salt is, is writing about this. Is it true that they're all so squarely behind abolition? I, I'm sort of trying to get a sense of, of where it fits in. Well, there is, uh, as there is in every political movement, uh, a range of opinions. And these develop over the what we might call the abolitionist period, which sort of starts in the 1780s and goes on rising to the 1830s, which was it was uh, not until the 1830s that that slavery was abolished. Well, I say abolished because it's still there, unfortunately. Slavery is a reality today, but it was certainly outlawed uh, in the 1830s across the British Empire. But uh, in in the 1780s, very very few people indeed are talking about about slavery per se. No one, uh, or at least very few people, are talking about uh, ending the servitude of, of people in Barbados and Jamaica and, and other places. They're focused on a much narrower thing, which is ending the slave trade. That is the, the trade in, in people from, uh, from Africa who are bought or sometimes kidnapped in Africa, transported across the Atlantic to labour in North, South, America and the Caribbean. Um, so that's the target. And so most poets who are writing, not just poets, but pamphleteers, people writing sermons, people writing novels, people who are writing political tracts, are focused on that very narrow um, objective. And if you go too far beyond that objective, it's quite often seen as, as radical. The other thing is that there's a sort of a, an unspoken or unwritten rule amongst anti-slavery campaigners, which is that while you may criticize slave traders, while you may criticize slave uh, holders, what you may not do, generally speaking, is encourage enslaved people to take violent retribution against the people who held them in captivity. It's very, very rare to see any kind of representation, whether it's a poem or otherwise, in which there are kinds of sort of acts of resistance, violent acts of resistance, particularly by African people in the Caribbean against their European captors. So she kind of breaks this because first of all, the poem contains at its heart a story about an enslaved person whom she calls Luco. It's not very clear who Luco is, where he comes from, where he is, but what is clear is that he is enslaved and that he takes violent uh, action against the people who are enslaving uh, him. And the enslavers are summed up in this character called Gorgon, who is described as a remorseless Christian. And this, but when it says Christian here, it just means 
which is synonymous with European. There's actually a, uh, a sequence in which he attacks Gorgon. Gorgon, remorseless Christian, saw the slave stand musing mid the ranks and stealing stuff behind the studious Luco, struck his cheek with a too heavy whip that reached his eye, making it dark forever. So uh, Gorgon has blinded Luco with his whip. And the next line immediately says, Luco turned in strongest agony and with his hoe struck the rude Christian on the forehead. This is not something that's generally represented in what we might call sort of polite anti-slavery literature. The idea of resistance is something that's missed out all too often. But here, Luco does resist his enslavement. And actually, this isn't the only poem. There are, there are a few others in which that happens. And one of them had been written 20 years earlier by uh, Chatterton, another Bristolian, in which that, that ends with a, a, an African, a free African on the beach in Africa, but who's taking revenge against slave traders by shooting with, with his bow and arrow. Uh, but again, it's a violent revenge because his, if I remember correctly, his wife has been enslaved, allowing these sort of literary representations of enslaved Africans to take violent revenge is very, very unusual and probably would have shocked quite a lot of readers. And it certainly would have put Yearsley on the radical wing of the abolition movement. Just three years after the publication of Anne Yearsley's poem, in 1791, a rebellion of enslaved people in Haiti, then a French colony known as Saint-Domingue, was a crucial but by no means isolated example of enslaved people taking up arms against their former masters. This is a topic we explored in podcast 46 on severing the sinews of slavery in Bristol. The poem to me seems that when we move away from Bristol, we get the story of Luco, that it's what you've described there is pretty harrowing. And then he is he attempts suicide, is unsuccessful with that attempt, is then burned for, for his attack on the slave trader. It's all really quite disturbing, visceral stuff. And I think you, you also made the point of his original uh, enslavement is this idea of him being taken away from his wife, which I thought was a very interesting idea and perhaps speaks to, to what you were saying about it being from a female point of view, that this is one of the other horrors that, that readers are, are being asked to reflect on, is this idea of abduction of a family member. Yes, and it's one of the criticisms that was made at the time of the slave trade, that it broke up families and that Christians should respect marriage even the marriages made within other faiths, but that uh, marriage should be respected, the family should be respected, and that slave traders paid no respect to husbands and wives, to sons, daughters, uh, fathers uh, and mothers. And so that is a, a very common criticism of the slave trade that's made at the time, and of course a fair criticism because that's exactly what they did. They paid no attention whatsoever to people's family relationships. In fact, possibly even the opposite, uh, slave traders would break up families, they would separate people who had friendships or even shared the same language because they feared people uniting together to, to rise up against them. So I think that that's something that uh, Yearsley is definitely playing into there. You know, one of these 
criticisms of the slave trade, that it breaks up families, is something that many poets uh, and other writers of the time like to pick up on, partly because it was something that they could use to communicate with women. And the anti-slave trade campaign was probably one of the first political campaigns to really involve a very large number of women. And so the sort of representation of families being broken apart we come across that time and again. And Yearsley's poem, we have the relationship between Luco and his wife in Solander. And I think that by showing that relationship being broken, Yearsley is definitely trying to appeal to her female uh, readers. I think one of the things I, I would say is that Anne Yearsley is a poet who wrote in 1788 uh, in support of the campaign to abolish the slave trade, and we should remember her for that. But actually, she was a very wide-ranging poet, and she also wrote a play uh, and a novel. Um, and that um, much of her poetry repays reading, and quite a lot of it is based in Bristol. So if you're listening to this podcast because you're interested in Bristol, you will find, I think, a lot in poems such as Clifton Gorge and other poems that talk about the, the local landscape in Bristol. And she is a poet who comes out of the 18th century. She She's writing in a style that, that's very influenced by the poets who are popular in her day. But in her, her kind of sensibility, her awareness to, to feeling, her interest in what she thinks of as natural passions, and, and also her engagement with the sublime, with the sublimity of nature, and that particularly comes through in her poem on Clifton Gorge. She is, in many ways, one of the earliest of the Romantic movement. Some of her best poetry bears comparison with some of the poetry of the Romantic poets who were just starting to write in the late 1780s and 1790s. So what I would say to, 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 to anyone who's listening to this and is interested is go out and find Yearsley's poetry. There's uh, quite a lot available on the internet and, and I think you will enjoy reading it. Many thanks to Professor Brick and Carey for chatting with me this week and thanks to you for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please subscribe or give us a five-star review. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can email bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And many thanks to Dr. Pavel Kuchar, who got in touch to suggest a podcast on Anne Yearsley.